0: Hello everyone and welcome to the Mariner's Mirror podcast. Today we continue our mini-series on Maritime Australia. To go alongside this, we've made some really fun animated video content. You can find them all at the Mariner's Mirror podcast YouTube page and on our Instagram and also TikTok. So please make sure to check all of those out. You will be amazed, I promise you. So far in our Australia series, we've been to Perth for the first few episodes and now we're in Brisbane at the Queensland Maritime Museum. The last episode was a short tour of the museum building and its many and wonderful objects and artefacts. And today I'm taking you on a tour We're outside. We're at the dry dock. That sits nestled into a bend on the south bank of the Brisbane River. To find out more, I spoke with Russell Cobine, a volunteer shipwright at the museum. As ever, I hope you enjoy listening to him as much as I enjoy talking with him. Here is the expertly experienced man with expertise oozing from his paws. He's the shipwrightiest man I've ever met. He's also good value and great company. Here is Russell. Um, So I'm standing here on the uh, decks of a World War II frigate looking out at a majestic river and I'm in the middle of Brisbane and I'm here with Russell. Where are we?
2: We are at South Brisbane Dry Dock in Brisbane which was established prior to World War I. And um, has been it was in operation as a dry dock through till about 1980 when the maritime museum was uh, formed, and uh, they now control the dry dock as it is today. Yeah.
0: It seems to be quite an, an amazing engineering achievement looking at the way that the dry docks formed. What do we know about how they built it?
2: Well, I don't know a great deal about how they built it, mainly because I wasn't here. But, <laughs> <laughs> but when you look at the structure, I believe that it's very much a great deal of limestone. Yep. Um, and it's been formed this way. And if, when we go up towards the, 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 f- the front of the dry dock, you'll see the actual stone where they've extended the length of it and taken, and you can see the, the stone formation. The idea of the steps is that it was they were used in a in part of the procedures when docking certain types of vessels. Right. Um, if you have a vessel uh, that has a fair amount of shape in the in the frames where it rises quickly, you know um, you use. Well they were Oregon posts that we used to wedge between there and the the deck of the boat to hold it up and it was one every two or three metres apart for the length of the boat. Um, If the boat was flat bottomed like a dredge or something like that, well then we used to build what we called a cradle to sit it in which was a, a series of blocks set at Pacific heights. Boat came in and sat on it.
0: And what's your own experience of the dry dock? As you said, you were here once many, many years ago.
2: I actually served my apprenticeship here at the dry dock in 1962. I commenced as a shipwright apprentice. I served uh, and worked in many of the aspects of the, the shipbuilding here, mainly in repair and in maintenance, assisting with docking, etc., learning. Uh, my way around the shipyard. It's interesting to note that my grandfather actually worked here in the dry dock during the war as a what they called in those days a dilute shipwright. Mm -hmm. He was not qualified, but he knew how to do the job and he was the one that said to me the best job I ever had was a shipwright. I think you should do that. So being the eldest grandson, I did as I was told. Fantastic.
0: <laughs> so you know your way around this place um, pretty well. So i mean yeah. looking. We're standing on the decks in the in the middle of the dry dock now, looking across onto the side of it, and um, there's plenty of equipment here as well. Some really interesting, um, interesting material. Um, are these these warehouses as well? Are they part of the original site?
2: They are part of the original site. Um, the the, the the concrete structure you can see here is actually the pump house and you can go down in there and and see the way the pumps operated and that's very interesting this area over here um, may have been moved but there used to be a a loft for the uh, mold, uh, mold maker there that was his little area um, and then from here out uh, the Alongside there to the left used to be the Boilermaker's shop because the dry dock, when it was owned by Harbour's marine, was self-sufficient in its own right. We had painters and dockers, who are, everybody knows one of them are, uh, painters and dockers, shipwrights, and the shipwrights that were here were also highly skilled in boat building. Um, many of them came from England. Uh, migrated over here and and worked in here and um, yeah so that's it and then over on this side where the museum is now there used to be a very large blacksmith shop next door to that was a fitting and turning workshop where they could machine or they had machines there that could turn a prop shaft if it needed to be then alongside that was uh, the shipwrights workshop there used to be 12 12 shipwrights um, here in the dry dock uh, as well as I think well there was only two apprentices when I started when I finished I think we had about six shipwright apprentices. Um, Along the the riverfront was wharves well we'll call them wharves but (laughs) they were pretty rickety but there were wharves and that's where we used to tie up the boats for maintenance work outside the um, the dry dock itself.
0: Yeah, and they've all gone now. I mean, the, the riverside is there are walkways for people to walk along, but there are not. There's not really places for people to tie up large amounts of ships, are there?
2: No, there isn't. Um, basically, along here used to be all uh, wharves etc. But with the implementation of the freeway, they limited the size of boats that could come up here, and that's one of the reasons the dry dock. Yes, yeah. but also this was the, the center of Brisbane so along uh, grey Street here was well known for the wharves and the equipment etc and the people that uh, you know our goods came into here and then were were moved yeah. from uh,
0: there what sort of goods are we talking about
2: oh you'd be talking about any household goods, material, building materials, construction materials, wheat, flour, wool—you yeah. know—a lot of those things would have been dispatched from here as well, because Queensland is known for wheat and wool and uh, you know, timber, etc. So, you know, it was our main receiving point for Queensland and a distribution point.
0: It's interesting now, as we stand on the decks, looking out of the, the gate of the dry dock. There are two bridges. Uh, which effectively seal off the, this majestic river. So I suppose back in the day we used to have imagined, you know, a huge forest of masts here rather than some busy motorway roads.
2: Well, not while I was was here, because the distance from the mouth of the river to here made it somewhat difficult for um, you know people to want to leave their boat here over the weekend or you know to go out weekend sailing because it's. I well, I've never, can't remember travelling it, but it's a couple of hours, two or three hours to get down before you got out into the ocean blue to go sailing. Yeah. So it was more commercial. Over the other side, there used to be, uh, there's, they were all government buildings. Uh, the QUT was a technical college for trades, etc. Um, and uh, behind there, of course, is the Botanic Gardens, which has been there since I was a kid. So. Yeah
0: had a good look around the Botanic Gardens yesterday, it was fantastic. The, um, an important part of Brisbane's recent history were these terrible floods you had last year. How did this cope with the floods?
2: When the floods last year, we actually had the water came in, the river rose, and uh, the, actually the water, a lot of water came down the sides of the hills there and it did engulf the dry dock, and it, the water rose to a point where the diamantina was just tithering on whether it was going to be floating or sitting on the uh, the blocks underneath so there was quite an anxious time for everybody to um, you know because of the way it's set up you've got to hold its position
0: let me just put this in context so we're standing on the decks of a uh, of a second world war frigate the diamantina and the could, she's obviously uh, exists in this dry dock, and the concern is there was so much water in the dry dock that she'd start floating. Is that correct?
2: That's correct. Yeah. Well, she actually was just right on the edge of floating. In the 1970, the, one of the previous ones, she actually did float, and she was floating up above the uh, the wall there. Yeah. So that's one of the challenges that that we face here. You know, when flood comes, and they seem to be more. lot more regular these days. So you've got
0: a historic vessel in a dry dock but that which might need to float at any unspecified time that's tricky to manage isn't it?
2: Well that's correct yes you know that's 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 the reality you know because uh, um, it's just not a simple process of getting the boat out of the dry dock these days because The old cassoon, which is the plug which holds the water out, it's been replaced and it wasn't built as it was originally because it was like a small boat. It used to float and you'd sink it to seal off the water because um, the water level out there is higher than in here so we've got to block it. Um, So they've built this new structure which is not independent of the... uh, of the dry dock itself, as you can see, there's got a number of metal straps, etc., on both sides, which are adding extra support. Whereas before, it was a self-floating vessel that used to, you would, it had water ballast in it. So what would happen is that when the the water, when when the dock was prepared, the water would be allowed to come into the dry dock, and while it was running. Um, until such time as the water on the outside was equivalent to the inside and then we would pump the ballast out of the cassoon, which would allow it to pop and then it would be manually handled sort of over here to uh, over against this wall here. Like a lock gate? Uh, like a lock gate, yeah, but it didn't lay down, it actually floated away and then when you were when the boat was in the dry dock you then the cassoon was put back in its place, yes. right, and sunk so that, you know, filled with water so that it locked into place and then that allowed the water here to be pumped out at a regulated level so it could be lowered, the boat could be lowered onto the cradle or the, or the shores put in as required. So how far
0: below water level is the bottom of this dry dock as we look at it now?
2: You got me caught there now. <laughs> um, no idea. It's probably about, depending on the tide, but twelve to twelve to fifteen feet, I would imagine, below the initial level. Yes. Yeah. Uh, now, from what I can remember, I actually did go down to the bottom of the dock on the outside there on one occasion, and it was about that, right. about twelve to fifteen.
0: Feet. A, a wonderful engineering achievement. Now, let's have <laughs> nose around the dock a bit more, shall we?
2: Yeah. If we go down here, we can
0: actually walk down into the dock. Oh, let's do that, walking into the dock. Sounds fun. Best way to get a good, good view of it.
2: Yeah. Well, you'll see the, the process. Well, the process in our day was a lot different. To the it
0: reminds me of the historic there. dock in um, Barrow and Furness, where I was recently. The Dockyard Museum was built over
2: that historic dock. Probably at a similar period, actually. It's probably. Probably designed from there. I don't know much about the designers and such like, but, uh, you know, um, I think one of the amazing things that I find is that uh, if you were to run around the volunteers here, you probably wouldn't find very many people qualified as shipwrights that yeah. serve their apprenticeship here at the dry dock. Where, right. Um, yeah, so if we've, so so we we go- climb down to the bottom of the yeah, dock here, yeah, let's yeah, do we that. Go this way. Way. So there are some um, old uh, marker boys here. Yes, black and white one, red and white one, huge green one. Yes, they've all got been used or donated to the uh, Maritime Museum, and bigger one right up at the, uh, the bow.
0: Yeah, it's a very busy place. There's all sorts of uh, work going on, maintaining. There are a number of historic vessels here, so we're just uh, passing one, which I believe was uh, used for. Uh, collecting pearls, and another one here is a yacht. Ah, oh, this is the one that was... Um, Jessica Watson.
2: Jessica Watson,
0: that's yep. right. Mm. Tell me about
2: her. Well, Jessica Watson was a young lady about 16 years of age, I think she was, when she circumnavigated um, the, the world. Is that right? Circumnavigated of the world? Um, in this boat, single-handed. Wow.
0: 16 years old. Yeah, that's incredible.
2: Yeah, Jessica Watson's a name, and she's well known for uh, the um, for that achievement.
0: Yeah, fascinating, lovely-looking yacht painted in pink. Right, let's go down the dry (laughs) dock. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. I'm just moving some wheels out the way. There's some wires we've got to step over. It's a very busy working yard. This.
2: The boys are just doing a little bit of maintenance to the Pink Lady. Pink Lady, that's uh,
0: uh, the uh, yacht we
2: were just talking about. Yeah, because we understand there will be a reception with Jessica Watson next week here really? at the museum.
0: Ooh. I think we should get Jessica Watson on the podcast, have a nice chat with her about her experiences. OK, so we're on um, uh, some stairs now, walking down to the bottom of the dry dock.
2: I think, if I remember correctly, there's 110 stairs in the old stairs, um, from the top of the dock to the bottom. Um, As an apprentice it was always great fun when you were setting up a cradle, if there was a box of nails needed or something else needed, guess who was the person that had to (laughs) navigate these (laughs) ten steps.
0: Yeah, and we are probably asked to go and collect things like sky hooks as well, tools that don't exist.
2: Yeah, sky hooks, (laughs) or the classic one here was they'd send you down to the store for a long wait.
0: Oh (laughs) yeah, and then you're staying at the store for some time. Yeah.
2: Um, brilliant so uh, so we're now we're now on the, the floor of the die-dock and um, you can see the basic principle here of, of of how it operated you've got to bear in mind that back in 19 this 1960s uh, we didn't have concrete structures such as this yeah so I should um, say that the um, this
0: enormous second world war frigate is standing on top of um, oh I, I don't know a hundred yeah. Um, concrete blocks um, but before it would have been um, resting on, on timber?
2: Timber blocks yeah they were blocks. There was at least one every 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 metre they were fastened down onto these pieces of timber so every 1200 roughly there's a, uh, there's a, a piece of timber which has been moulded into the hull and that's where you would fasten you would fasten the wooden blocks and what they are basically equated to that you used to have <coughs> if I can use 1962 language yeah, uh, absolutely. A, a 12 inch by 12 inch uh, hardwood block possibly uh, about four foot long yeah. um, that would sit on the base and then you would have a couple of smaller ones, may maybe six inches, four inches. They come in varied sizes because you had to have different heights. Mm-hmm. And then we would have a couple of hardwood wedges, which were about three foot long, and they went from four inches to uh, eight inches. Yep. And they'd sit on top of each other, which allowed you to adjust. Then on top of that, you would have a line of packing and then you'd have another small blocks, and then on the top was a piece of pine, which is usually about um, uh, 18 inches wide by three foot long by about four inches thick. That was to take the compression. Yep. The idea of having the different, the, the, the structure like that was that there were the occasions where you were required to remove a block yeah. to do repair to the hull or whatever. So what that would entail then is that you'd pull the battens off that were tying it all together and then you'd get eight shipwrights down on the job and we had a ram, the old ram days. This
0: sounds incredibly dangerous.
2: <laughs> <laughs> we're around about six by four, all right, with ropes through it every so often, and with a steel band on the end and the leading hand would get there and it would be, you'd yeah. swing it back yep. and forth and yep. hit the block. Well, wow. cross your
0: fingers. Cross your fingers. <laughs> so the ship doesn't land on your head.
2: <laughs> well, yeah, that, well, there was a block every, every <laughs> 1200, but the other, and if that, if that wasn't sufficient to remove the, um, to take the pressure off the lock, the job then was to split out the piece of pine on top. And I can tell you some stories about that. Because basically to split it out we had like big splitting chisels which were about two foot long and about two inches in diameter and they had a point on the end of them. And the concept was that somebody held the the chisel where it had to be hit and the mate behind you swung a seven pound hammer (laughs) and hit the... The, yeah. uh, the end of the thing and we split the material out and we talked about long waits etc but also there were always lots of shenanigans that went on yeah. and you've got to realise that the people that I served my apprenticeship they were very seasoned tradesmen they'd been involved in this for 15 and 20 years they were the same team they all knew what they had to do um, and You as an apprentice, of course, would always land the good job. You'd be holding on it. And then every so often we used to use what was called mauls. And that was a a seven-pound hammer that had a normal hammerhead on one end but had a pointed end on the other end. And you'd be standing there concentrating and the bloke and then somebody would say after the bang, did you use the right end, Tom? And you'd look around and here he's got the pointed piece and he's <laughs> <laughs> you know which has got a whole diameter of about half an inch, you know, driving this. But really and truly they they were so good at it that yeah. they could do it, you know. Another thing you used to do if you well got a bit of difference is we used to have nail driving competitions.
0: <laughs> right, okay. Wow. <laughs> well, yeah. Were some of those going upwards?
2: Yeah, well, basic. well, yeah, usually it was going downwards right. because, see, each block had to be tied together. Yep. So it was tied together with a piece of 4 B 2 hardwood, yep. all right, and it'd be nailed off. And they were also tied, um, as the blocks went up, they all had to be tied together. So there were four battens on each block, which went from the top to the bottom, and then you had these longitudinal ones because timber's got a bad habit of floating (laughs) so when the water before the boat went on it you had to make sure it was secure you'd have to prop the end as well so that when the the keel came down and the pressure went back that there was something to stop it from tumbling over so it was not unusual for us, you know, as the day went on, and if you spent eight hours down here leveling blocks and putting them in place and nailing them off, you all tend to get a little, you know, need a bit of relaxation. So they line the nails up and say, how, how, how well can you drive forward and nail through that timber there? Yeah. The tradesman could do it in one and a half strikes of a hammer. No way, that's unbelievable. Yep. No, they just had that knack of the flick of the wrist. The timing and the... The timing and everything, that they just bang straight through. Amazing. The timber was almost like pine because it was pretty wet, but still pretty miraculous. Yeah. How, how many hits would it take me, do you reckon? Well, depends how times you miss. <laughs> <laughs> That's very true.
0: <laughs> very good. Um, and uh, tell me about I don't know health and safety down here. Was it? I mean, health what, and who? Health and safety. Yeah. What happened there? Was it? Was there anyone looking out for for you? Did you feel that there was supervisors keeping an eye on what was going on?
2: Now, being a, have, having spent the last six years before I retired as a health and safety officer, I'm just about ready to damn myself. Interesting. i will no, for it. <laughs> um, no, there was no health and safety. We used to have a first aid officer, no. you know, but apart from that, there was no inductions, no no training, you know. Common sense was prevailed and, uh, you know, I guess we all knew our limitations. And, well, I think in my history there that we only ever had... We had one, one serious accident in the five years I was here and that was on a... A circular saw made a bit of a mess of the guy, but his arm. But normally, most things, you know, we did have a. We did this <coughs> you can cut the bits out, you don't mm-hmm. want. <laughs>
0: right, we, tell me the story, tell me the story.
2: We did have an apprentice that had been in a car accident and he had a wooden leg. Right. You know, and the foot of his wooden leg was bolted with a stainless steel bolt. And I can still remember the day I was, he was working on the deck, they were removing some of the Malthoid on the deck with scrapers, and the bolt on his foot broke. And I'm on the other side and they said, hey Russ, can you go and get the first aid officer because, um, I forget his name, let's say, Merv. His foot just fell off. <laughs> I didn't know. I knew he had a wooden leg, but I didn't know his foot was how it was connected. And he goes, holds his shoe up. Um, I was sent up to get his car, brought him back. He went, come back four hours later, they put a new bolt in his wooden leg. But he was able to work. He worked alongside us. and uh, But I still remember, you know, and I'm talking... Sixty years ago, I still vividly remember yeah. you know, this this guy, <laughs> foot <fell> off. <laughs> what it's a wonderful story. I tell you what,
0: though, I'm pretty pleased I've got two feet. Being a bit topperly would not be good here. You know? No. Oh no,
2: no. Well, un- unfortunately, safety was never something which was um, promoted to the level it is today. And I do believe that there are some people today that they take it to the other extreme. Um, I think some of the best safety officers I've worked with and what I tried to um, put my spin on it was that were people who had actually done the job and then moved on to that position. Yeah. They understood some of the tolerances and know some of the things you know uh, that you could get away with if you like for the sake of a better terminology but you know the effects of the lack of safety domination is very relevant even in myself today all right if you look closely you'll see that i wear glasses that's because i had one too many welding flashes right i wear hearing aids i wonder why because one of the days, in those days, they used to clean the outside of a boat with rust with rattle guns.
0: Right, wow. I don't know what a rattle gun well, is. Well, a rattle I... gun is <laughs>
2: an air compressor with a hammer that goes at rapid speed against the metal hull. Yeah. But you'd be inside the boat working, and there'd be 20 or 30 blokes outside rattling.
0: Oh, oh my goodness me.
2: Yeah. So, therefore, you suffer from industrial deafness. Yeah. And I think one of the other interesting things about the shipbuilding industry is that, just as I say to people these days when I'm talking to them, if you're going to build a boat don't bring your square because nothing's square, nothing's really level you're on a boat. Um, It's all got curves, shapes, etc. So you've got to learn how to do it without these modern conveniences and also have you ever tried to stand up in a small boat? It's practically impossible, and you've got one leg up here and you've got another leg there. And he says, "Can you just move that engine bed another three inches this way?" And that's a piece of twelve by twelve, you know, six, seven foot long. Yeah, right. Yeah. So therefore, you'll find most people that worked in this trade have got back, they can't see and they can't hear (laughs)
0: Well it's amazing you're still here Russ, well done Um, Well listen, thank you very much indeed for this little tour, I really appreciated
2: it. Okay, thank you very much and uh, you know, we always like to share our industry, you know sort of, I know my grandson thinks nothing better if he's Grandmother says, I'll go and pick granddad up from the the boat. He's down and he's all over it. And his last time he said, I want to go down the dry dock. I said, you can't, it's closed. (laughs) Surely you can take me down, Pa. And he run around here and just thoroughly enjoyed. When he went home, he said to his mother, I'm going to build boats like Pa. Yay, good lad. Good lad.
0: Good lad. Well, I wish him all the best. And it's really reminding of how, how hugely inspirational it is being in the bottom of a dry dock, because you've got this enormous vessel above you. You've got these remarkable stepped sides, the curves, the stairs. And I mean, it just makes you wonder how on earth they built it, why on earth they built it, and the majestic history of the entire place. So very kind of you to bring me down. Thank you. Now, my turn to ask of you a favour. If you're listening on iTunes, please leave us a review. If you do so, I promise I'll read it out. It helps a huge deal as the more reviews we get, the easier it is for people to find us and therefore the more we can teach people about our maritime past. Uh, Don't forget that this podcast comes from both the Society for Nautical Research and the Lloyd's Register Foundation and please check out what both of those institutions are up to. You can find the History and Education Centre Of the Lloyd's Register Foundation at hec.lrfoundation.org.uk and make sure to check out their latest project, Maritime Innovation. In miniature, just google it maritime innovation in miniature. You'll find videos of the world's greatest ship models filmed with the very latest camera equipment. There's some fabulous more material on its way soon. Um, got a little trip to the Maritime Museum in Stockholm, and their extraordinary collection of ship models coming up. The Society for Nautical Research you can find at snr.org.uk and that is where you go to join up. It's a brilliant way to meet people and to find out all about the maritime past from the very best in the business. And if you're a full member, you get to come to our annual dinner on board HMS Victory or this year HMS Warrior and that is something you will never, ever forget.